Hey, you guys, Scott Horton here to remind you that it's fun drive time at the Institute right now. We only do this twice a year, but it's got to be done. And I'm proud to do it, too. We've got an incredible crew of the best writers, authors, and podcasters in the libertarian movement. From Jim Bovard, Lori Calhoun, Tom Woods, and Ted Carpenter, to Keith Knight, Kyle Anzalone, Hunter Dorensis, Connor Freeman, and all the rest of the guys. It's the best team around. We've published three books this year. Keith Knight's Voluntarist Handbook, Lori Calhoun's Questioning the COVID Company Line, and Joseph Solis Mullins, The Fake China Threat. And here any day now, we will be publishing Thomas E. Wood's Diary of a Psychosis, Jim Bovard's Last Rites, and Keith Knight's latest, Domestic Imperialism. That makes 13 books so far, with more coming in the new year, including my new one, Provoked, How Washington Started the New Cold War with Russia and the Catastrophe in Ukraine, which, I know, is already overlong and overdue, but I'm working on it, I promise. And which brings me to the point. We don't have a big glass office building in downtown Washington. The money we raise goes straight to payroll and book production costs, and that's about it. The Libertarian Institute is the best bang for your buck in the movement. If you believe in what we're doing, please go to libertarianinstitute.org slash donate for details on how you can help keep us going into the new year and the great kickbacks we offer as well. And we thank you for your support. All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there, and the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com. Slash Scott Horton Show. Okay, guys, on the line, I've got Jeremy R. Hammond, and he is the author of the great book about America's role in the Israel-Palestine conflict called Obstacle to Peace, which is just an incredible piece of work. I hope that you'll take a good long look at it. And he writes at jeremyrhammond.com and, of course, including very critical stuff about the current slaughter taking place in the Gaza Strip. Welcome back to the show, Jeremy. How are you, sir? Doing all right, Scott, all things considered. Thanks for having me on again. It's an honor and pleasure to speak with you again. Uh, Great. Well, happy to have you here on the show. You have some really important work here that I do hope people will look at. I mean, first of all, this one, visualizing Israel's goal of making Gaza uninhabitable. And this is based, I believe, on a story in the New York Times and satellite pictures that they got a hold of and the devastation that they're showing in the northern part of the Gaza Strip, at least, as far as this piece goes. So can you take us through that and and what made you decide to write this piece? Yeah, sure. So it is from the New York Times. The New York Times had a kind of an interactive feature where as you scroll down the page, they have these satellite images and they have a, a before and after, and you can just grab a slider and, and and slide left and right and see the before and after of these images of what has happened on the ground in the, in North Gaza. Um, and it, the, the images are just so devastating. And you can see what, 
you can see that Israel has been implementing um, what officials have been declaring is their intent, which is to make Gaza uninhabitable. Um, and you can see it on the ground where you where there were formerly communities and buildings and restaurants and seaside resorts, schools, all all, the, all these you know orchards, uh, greenhouses, everything gone, everything turned into a moonscape, um, just completely flattened, completely everything is bulldozed. Uh, it's it's quite obvious what the intent of Israel's operation is and. Um, even the mainstream media at this point have come around to stop, you know, you don't see them saying anymore like, well, Israel says that it does everything possible to avoid harm to civilians. They're not passing that off as though that's like objective reporting. Um, even the mainstream media have started to come around and saying like, well, th this is, you know, starting to acknowledge how what we're seeing on the ground is not at all reconcilable with, with this claim that the Israeli military uh, it tries to avoid harm to civilians. This, this is not a, a military operation targeting Hamas. This is a military operation targeting the civilian population of Gaza. Um, it, it's just it's just so brazen and blatantly obvious that that's what their intent is. And essentially, the plan is that the people of Gaza, the Palestinians inhabiting this. Um, concentration camp, this huge concentration camp, as it was described by then uh, Israeli National Security uh, Council, um, the head of the National Security Council in Israel, uh, Giora Island in 2004, describing Gaza as a huge concentration camp. That was before the 16-year escalation of the blockade um, that has been underway since, and of course, before the Hamas atrocities of 10-7, after which, since which, Israel has been imposing uh, an, a complete, a near total siege of Gaza, preventing the shipment into Gaza of humanitarian goods that they depend on for survival. Um, and so their aim essentially is, you know, their, their position is the Palestinians can flee to go live in tent cities in the Sinai Desert, or they can die. That's that's the clear and explicit aim of of Israel's military operations. Yeah. All right. Well, look. I mean, uh, as they say, a picture speaks a thousand words, and all that. People can go and see for themselves, as you say, not just bombing, but then bulldozing and clearing out entire massive communities. And they'll say, "Hey, look, we're just hunting for Hamas tunnels." And I guess. That's the PR strategy is we'll just keep saying one thing while we're doing another. And that'll be enough to kind of confuse the issue. And yet at the same time, isn't it clear, Jeremy, that through official statements and also sort of semi-official statements through former government officials, that the Israelis have made it very clear that they need to take the whole strip. As yeah, absolutely. Keep they, it they, they, and they, keep the Palestinians off it. The genocidal intent has been there since the beginning. I mean, you have Netanyahu himself invoking the Bible and the Israelite genocide of the Amalekites in the Bible, um, and he describing the Palestinians as the Amalekites, and so in reminding Israelites that we're in a war against Amalek. I mean, Netanyahu knows what that means. He understands how that is inciting genocide. I mean, it's so clear. You know, you have Israeli defense minister describing Palestinians as human animals, 
saying we're going to eliminate everything in Gaza. Uh, the IDF's coordinator of government activities in the territories, the occupied territories, that is, um, or the COGAT, saying human animals must be treated as such. There will be no electricity and no water. There will be only destruction. You wanted hell, you will get hell. IDF spokesman saying the emphasis is on damage, not accuracy. You have uh, Yura, Gailand, uh, Yura Island, who I had mentioned before, no longer um, an Israeli official, but the former head of Israel's National Security Council, writing multiple articles in Israeli newspapers, um, clearly describing the goal of, it, like explicitly saying that we need to make Gaza uninhabitable and that we need to target the civilian population, saying things like we need to tell the, the civilians to flee to UNRWA schools, which are the shelters, that, the schools that are being used for shelters in Gaza, and the Shifa hospital. And then we immediately after that, we need to um, bomb those targets. Um, it's, just, it's just, they're so explicit and clear in their genocidal intent that anyone who at this point is still trying to deny that genocide is what is happening um, it's just, it's just, it's just pure willful ignorance. Now they say the people, I guess, who I think you accurately described there as in denial will say, yeah, but there's still Hamas guys out there. And of course they're begging the question and assuming the conclusion that there's only one way to fight them. And that is to decimate the entire strip this way. But let's say for the sake of argument that, and I don't know what your opinion is on this. But let's say for the sake of argument that um, you wanted to grant the Israelis that, sure, they'll never be safe unless Hamas is completely eradicated. Would there be a way to do that short of what they're doing here or not really? What do you think? No, not at all. I mean, first of all, Hamas is essentially a creation of Israeli policies. We need to remember that Hamas... The existence of Hamas is a consequence and not the cause of the Israel-Palestine conflict. When Hamas was first uh, founded in the late 1980s, Israel uh, supported it as a counterforce to the PLO, which had dangerously accepted the two-state solution. Um, and so it was, a, you know, the, the Israel was threatened by the prospect of having a, 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 a legitimate peace partner, uh, someone who the, the international community viewed as a peace partner for Israel. That was a threat. So there was a threat of peace. Israel doesn't want peace. Israel wants the land, but it wants the land without the Palestinians. This has always been the aim of, Zion, of the Zionist movement, modern political Zionism. Um, from, from the start, from the time of the, the British mandate period, the mandate that was enforced um, specifically to deny the, the Palestinians their right to self-determination and, and the mandate, the, the belligerent British occupation that facilitated the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 1948. Um, and then Netanyahu has had an explicit policy of utilizing Hamas um, uh, as a strategic ally. And, and you've written about this. You've, you know, you've got that great article at antiwar.com, um, you know, using Hamas as a strategic ally um, for the specific aim of blocking any movement toward peace negotiations with the Palestinians. Um, and in every other round uh, that we've seen, you know, you had Operation Cast Lead, December 27th, 2008 to January 18th, 2009, Operation Pillar of Cloud, Operation Protective Edge. Every single time um, Israel goes into one of these, you know, operations, they call it, they just call it mowing the lawn, mowing the, every time they mow the lawn in Gaza, it doesn't, it, Hamas doesn't come out 
weaker, it, it comes out stronger. Um, because when when it, when Israel goes in and demol and targets civilian infrastructure and massacres um, innocent civilians, um, it it only bolsters the more extremist elements, and it only further radicalizes um, people who who have just like been all hope has been taken away from them, all all prospects of some kind of um, meaningful future ha have been deprived, um, have been taken away from them. And you know when you when you lock up. 2.2 million people in a concentration camp the size of Wichita, Kansas. You know, what I always hear the argument that you kind of alluded to, you know, you hear people trying to defend the, the slaughter is saying, you know, what else do we expect Israel to do? It's like, well, what else do you expect the Palestinians to do? I mean, if we're going to justify violence as a, as, as a response to violence, well, then why weren't, why wasn't Hamas's attacks justified by the same reasoning? Of course, I reject that reasoning. There was no possible justification for the atrocities committed by Hamas on 10-7, just as obviously there's no possible justification for the crime of genocide or the lesser crimes of war crimes that have been committed um, in, in every round of, of, of Israel's mowing the lawn in Gaza. And so what you had on 10-7 was you had, you know, these, these youth um, members of Hamas who had grown up in this concentration camp, had known nothing but the deprivation of living in this huge concentration camp. Um, and, and you had a situation where I think the, the main goal of, of, of Hamas's operation, which it called Operation Al-Aqsa uh, Al Flood, um, I think was really to shatter the status quo and to remind the world, hey, the Palestinians are still here. We're still here. Um, yeah. And, you know, especially in light of the the so-called normalization processes that were underway with Abraham Accords, um, the negotiations with Saudi Arabia, uh, of course, with U.S. backing to try to normalize relationships, which essentially just means that getting the issue of the Palestinians off of the table politically among these other Arab Arab states. That's essentially what that's about. Yeah. And, well, and so Hamas wanted to, to remind the world that the Palestinians are still there. Well, so I... Absolutely agree with that. And I'm not sure if you saw my piece one before last about they're trying to provoke a reaction here. That's how it works in terrorism. And yet, um, well, I hate to cite Max Abrams because he's been just so horrible on this, but he is a terrorism expert and has shown in that sort of academic way, uh, analyzing all different cases uh, throughout, you know, at least our modern era, that usually terrorism doesn't work. It makes matters much worse. Take, for example, the Sunni insurgency committing mass suicide bombing attacks against Shiite pilgrims during Iraq War II. And the purpose of that was to provoke a Shiite overreaction to drive more Sunnis into the arms of the Al-Qaeda types leading the insurgency. But they ended up just getting their clocks cleaned. The Shiites just had a 60-20 supermajority situation going on. Never mind the Kurds in the north there for the moment. And the Sunnis got their asses handed to them, Jeremy. And it looks here like Hamas sure got the reaction and the overreaction. And for that matter, all the counter reactions that they were going for, or some of them, um, they sure took Gaza and Palestine from the back burner and put it on the front burner again. You're not just going to ignore us and look at Eastern Europe instead. We still matter and all of that. And yet back to the, our top of the story here, man. Visualizing the absolute desolation of the Gaza Strip that they provoked with this recent round, 
and I understand who's occupying who, but, you know, they kicked off this recent round of fighting on the 7th there, and um, they were always running the risk that the reaction that they would provoke would be far too much to handle. And I wonder whether you think that they really blew it, even from their own point of view here. I understand they'll probably survive, but to rule over what? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, not only morally, of course, but but strategically, it was a horrible mistake. I think, um, because anytime you give up moral high ground, you're 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 losing. You know, you can't you can't win strategically when you when you when you do that. Um, on the other hand you know, you do have the world kind of awakening. On the other hand, you know, if we're, if there is a silver lining to to what is happening, which is hard to find, but, you know, looking as optimistically as possible, um, you know, there is kind of an opportunity. What, what is happening is basically the thin veil has been pulled away and the true face of modern political Zionism is revealed. Um, and so we see what it is. And so the true nature of the Jewish supremacist state that exists between the river and the sea um, is coming to light in a way that even the most ardent um, apologists for Israel's crimes against the Palestinians um, are incapable of not seeing. You know, it's anyone with eyes to see can see what what is really happening and what Israel's true intent and goals are. You have Netanyahu coming out and saying, I'm so proud you know, he had always tried to maintain this pretense of of kind of like being in favor of of some kind of Palestinian, you know, autonomous areas, minimally, you know, um, which some, the, the Western media report as his support for a two state solution, which is ridiculous. But he's at least always tried to maintain a pretense uh, of of you know maintaining some kind of you know like willingness to engage in diplomacy. Um, but but that mask has come off and he's, you know, just recently announced how how proud he is of blocking the, you know, any peace negotiations um, for as long as he's been in office. And, and what a wonderful accomplishment that's been and, and, and his rejection of the two state solution. It's all it's all just brazen and and, and blatant and explicit now. So there's the, the veil has been lifted and, and people can see now the reality of, of what Israel is. Uh, the reality of what the so-called Jewish state is. It's a Jewish supremacist state that controls all the territory between the, the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, uh, including the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Um, and you have this um, oppressive apartheid regime, um, which increasingly has been acknowledged by, you know, you have Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, numerous UN agencies and inquiries, um, Israeli human rights organizations, Betzalem, Gisha, et cetera, um, all describing the situation um, as apartheid. Yeah, and I think in that the real important point here, Jeremy, is that this two-state solution illusion thing, it was the perfect public relations scam for, what, 30 years? Ah, there's a peace process. We're going to peace process. There's a map. John Kerry's meeting with the guy, and they're going to not do anything, but we're going to take up some time here and Annapolis here and this and that roadmap. And, but then, as you say, the mask is off where Netanyahu in 2020 and 21 said, nah, forget it, dude. That's it. We're not doing a two-state solution. There will always be one state from the river to the sea, but it won't be free. It'll be ruled by me. And you guys are just going to have to learn to live with it. And 
In fact, that was his big speech before the United Nations just a couple of weeks before the October 7th attack was essentially, I got away with it. You said that I couldn't make peace with the Arab states, that is the American Sunni sock puppet kingdoms of the GCC, unless I gave up a Palestinian state first. But the Netanyahu doctrine was, no, I don't either. I'll just get the Americans to buy enough fighter jets for these guys that they give in and normalize relations, which is what he did. And he held up a map of the whole place, one color, no West Bank, no Gaza Strip there. It's all Israel from the river to the sea. And crowed that essentially got away with it. And and this is the policy of the last couple of years, just the last two, three years where he's admitted this outright is what really caused these groups like Betsalem, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, and I guess a lot of politicians and others to say, and including Israeli politicians, to say this is apartheid. What else can you call it when it is one state and you're not pretending that they'll ever have independence again? In fact, as long as I'm rambling about this, let me end it in the form of a question, Jeremy, and you can answer whatever you want about what I just said, too. But Mm -hmm. delusional, senile old Biden has been saying, you know, after this, we definitely got to do a two-state solution with the PA in charge of Gaza. And Netanyahu just said, forget you, man. We are not doing that. And one of his ministers said the same thing on the BBC there, that you could just forget it, dude. And and as he's saying, you got to keep me because I'm the only one who can prevent a two-state solution. Now, see, big bad Biden's going to try to force us to accept it. Only I have the power to resist his will is what Netanyahu's running on now outright avowedly saying only he can prevent there from ever being an independent Palestinian state. So but I wonder what you think about Joe Biden and whether he's serious there and whether you think that even there's a chance of that at all or or what you see happening here. Yeah, well, that ties right into the question of what the exit strategy is. And you have you have Biden pushing, you know, for the, for for what's happening in Gaza. I mean, and you have Biden kind of saying, well, once Hamas is gone, you know, with this, you know, again, delusional idea that they're just going to go in there and, and eradicate Hamas and, and that's going to be the end of it. So once Hamas is gone, well, we need to have the, the Palestinian Authority move back into Gaza and, and take over control. Um, and in that, you know, responding to that saying, nope, not going to happen. We're not letting the PA in here either. <laughs> so what is the exit strategy? And, you know, as far as the two states, or I'm sorry, as far as the, the so-called peace process is concerned, um, going back to 1967 and the and the passage of UN Res- Security Council Resolution 242, um, we have to understand the distinction between the two-state solution premised on the applicability applicability of international law to the conflict, and what the U.S. has always backed and proposed under the so-called peace process of a two-state solution, two completely different things. And of course, uh, Resolution 242 called on Israel to withdraw its forces. Um, after the 1967 war, which it started on the morning of June 5th, withdraw its forces to the pre-June 5th um, armistice lines, which are the same as the Green Line, sometimes called the 1967 lines, also known as the 1949 armistice lines. Um, the the understanding of that resolution, the intent of that resolution in the Security Council, which is the only legitimate interpretation of the resolution, was that Israel must immediately um, and fully withdraw its forces from the uh, the territories it occupied, which was the Syrian Golan Heights, the Egyptian Sinai Peninsula, and of course the Palestinian territories of the West Bank and Gaza. Um, Israel, of course, has rejected and remains in violation of that resolution um, because it it had its own unilateral interpretation of the resolution, whereby it didn't need to withdraw. 
uh, until there was some kind of peace uh, agreement um, that was negotiated. And so the Israel's interpretation is that the people living under the occupying power in the occupied territories must negotiate with the, their occupier, occupier over how much of their own land they can continue to live in and maybe exercise sort of kind of some kind of limited autonomy over. Um, so that's that's Israel's framework. And, and that is the exact framework that the U.S. adopted um, from the start in the immediate aftermath of, of the passage of Resolution 242. The U.S. has accepted Israel's unilateral interpretation over the interpretation of the Security Council. Um, and that was the whole entire basis of the so-called peace process, um, which is premised on a rejection of the applicability of international law to the conflict. Um, so in just clarifying those two points, and so the two-state solution really just means an end to the occupation, which might be a first step, but it can't be the last step. And my thinking on this has changed since I published Obstacle to Peace in 2016, where I do now think that there isn't even a remote possibility of implementing the two-state solution, of course, but even a two-state solution as advocated by Israel, you know, not not Yahoo certainly, but at least um, you know they had spoken words about a two state solution, never sincerely. Um, but you, you know even even that there's just, there's just no possible way the, the peace process is dead. It's never going to come back be revived at this point. There's just no possibility for it. It has no it, it has no credibility or viability. Um, and I think that the only real solution at this point is um, just for an end. To the Jewish supremacist state, and when I when I say that, it's not just that there's this apartheid regime um, in, in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. There's also just discriminatory laws against uh, um, Palestinians, um, Arab citizens of, of Israel. I mean, there's the just to to, pick, to point to one clear, explicit example: the Jewish nation state law, which actually defines the, that it says that the the exercise of the right to self-determination in Israel is an exclusive right of Jews. So there you have it. Um, you know, this idea that Israel is some kind of, you know, democracy and, and it's this liberal democracy with equal rights for all citizens. This is also a delusion. Mm -hmm. And that's um, a very so, recent law, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's a few years back. I don't recall, maybe 2019 or so. Um, but yeah, it's it's not that old. And there's other there's a, there's a lot of other discriminatory laws. Mm -hmm. Um, there's there's a database. I forget the name of the organization, um, but the, I think they count something like 69 or so. You know, just discriminatory laws, including you know, like this. There's this housing committee law that enables um, municipal areas to exclude residents and not allow people to move into their communities uh, on, on the grounds that they want to maintain their their distinct character, which of course is directed at at um, Arab citizens of Israel and so they that they can maintain the Jewish character of of their communities. So the idea that there's no discrimination against Arabs in, in Israel is also a delusion. Um but but this, but this is these are the reasons why you know you you have these organizations um coming out and describing the situation as an apartheid regime. Well, so you know, I certainly agree with everything you said there about the difficulty of doing a two-state solution when the whole thing was an illusion anyway, and as you describe in your book, um, even under the best-case scenario, it was going to be this state minus and sort of continuing the occupation. 
And I know that, you know, when I talk with Palestinian activists like Ramzi Baroud or Ali Abu Nima or some of these guys, forget the two-state solution, man. They're not falling for that illusion anymore at all. They never were. If they were, it was a hell of a long time ago. And it's got to be one state or nothing. But then when you talk about how difficult it would be to ever do a two-state solution, we run into the same problem here where the idea of and the the uh, the policy of keeping a jewish supremacist state as you call it there in not just in jerusalem and tel aviv but in london and in washington dc as well um and for that matter the rest of the eu and berlin and the rest this is completely non-negotiable and they're not going to let that happen and i think that it's mostly nonsense. And if you look at the number of Israeli Arabs or uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel, as they call them, who live there now, um, you know, I think it puts the lie to the idea that if they just freed all the Palestinians of the West Bank and Gaza Strip and called them Israeli citizens, that then they would, oh, kill all the Jews and push them into the sea and all these things. I don't think there's any reason to think that, but I do think that there's reason to think that the Israelis sure think that. And certainly in the aftermath of October 7th, they think that. I'm sure people listening to this show right now are going, oh, yeah, just tear down the fence and tear down all the walls and then just see what happens, huh? And so we can't have that either. So how are we going to do a one-state solution that's any more realistic than a two-state solution? Mm-hmm. Or any more realistic than what Likud has apparently decided here, which is... When they're done force marching the Gazans on their trail of tears into the Sinai Peninsula or into the sea to drown, as it were, that then they're just going to have to turn to the West Bank, build a railroad across the Jordan and purge them too, uh, sooner or later anyway. And there's your one state solution. The Palestinians have to go, according to the Israeli government here. But can you describe a realistic scenario to the contrary, I guess, is the question that's a really big challenge um obviously um but you know when i wrote obstacle to peace my my answer to that question was well it needs to be done in stages i mean i, I agreed back then with the, with the overall goal of a, a, a one-state solution but then you know my question was well how do you get there and so I, I i figured that it needed to be done in stages stage one would be implementation of the two-state solution effectively just meaning ending the occupation um, and then st- step two would be then be to um, resolve the refugee problem and finding, um, you know, uh, finding justice and some kind of reasonable solution um, for the for the refugees. Um, but, you know, my, my, my thinking at, at this point is, you know, it's evolved. And, and at this point, I don't know that that's a, a feasible path forward either. But but no matter what happens, no matter what the what the steps would be. At this stage, the first thing that needs to happen is for U.S. support for Israel's crimes against the Palestinians to come to an end. And that's really up to us as Americans to affect the paradigm shift uh, and to make it politically infeasible for that support to be able to continue. Um, Because that really is, you know, in my view, um, the biggest obstacle to peace, apart from the Israeli government itself, because it's the U.S. government that enables and empowers Israel to go on maintaining its occupation, expanding its illegal settlement regime, um, um, arming Israel, providing Israel with, you know, three point eight billion dollars annually in military aid, 
Um, so it can go into Gaza and mow the lawn with its raids in the West Bank, um, protecting violent settlers in the West Bank, um, protecting the the radical extremist Jews who march through Jerusalem chanting death to Arabs. You know, I mean, it, all of this just needs to come to an end. The, 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 the crimes against the Palestinians, uh, the U.S. support for, for the, those crimes just need to stop. And if we can't get there, then then Israel is just going to continue to commit these crimes with impunity. And we see this with the ongoing genocide, where the U.S. is absolutely complicit in the genocide, apart from arming it and and protecting is, but and all, but also protecting Israel um, in the UN Security Council by continually blocking um, efforts for to to pass a ceasefire resolution. Um, which then goes to the both times this has happened that the U.S. has used its veto veto twice now in the U.N. Security Council, and then it moved on to this, the General Assembly, where the international community expressed its voice that there needs to be an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. And of course, um, the, the U.S. in the most recent vote there in the General Assembly was was alone with with Israel and you know a handful of its vassal states essentially um, in in voting against. Uh, the General Assembly resolution. So, you know, the, the U.S.'s complicity in an ongoing genocide is is, is also absolutely clear. Um, and, you know, so what really needs to happen is also the International Criminal Court, the ICC needs to get involved here. There needs to be accountability. Um, uh, war crimes need to be prosecuted. Um, and the perpetrators, uh, whether they're Hamas, militants or Israeli government officials, U.S. government officials. Um, there need to be prosecutions for war crimes and, and the crime of genocide, the crime of apartheid. Um, there needs to be there needs to be accountability um, that this is kind of a first step, you know, and without that, how can we talk about step two? We need to get to the we need to get to the, the place where there, there's actually accountability for the crimes that are continually committed. Yeah. Hey, y'all, Scott here. Let me tell you about Roberts and Roberts Brokerage, Inc. Who knew? Artificial bank credit expansion leads to price inflation and terribly distorted markets. If you've got any savings left at all, you need to protect them. You need to put some, at least, into precious metals. Well, Roberts and Roberts can set you up with the best deals on silver, gold, platinum, and palladium. And they've been doing this since 1977. Hey, if you just need some sound advice about sound money, they're there for you, too. Call Tim Fry and the guys at 800-874-9760. That's 800-874-9760. Or check them out at rrbi.co. That's rrbi.co. You'll be glad you did. Hey, y'all, you should sign up for my Substack. It's scotthortonshow.substack.com. And if you do that, you'll get the interviews a day before everybody else. But not only that, They'll be free of commercials. How do you like that? Pretty good, huh? ScottHortonShow.substack.com Hey, y'all. LibertasBella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great Top Lobsters designs as well. See? That way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. LibertasBella. From the same great folks who bring you Ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's LibertasBella.com well, look, I know this will probably make a lot of people in my audience angry, you know, or people are very made up their mind about this. 
But I'm really not a 9-11 truther. I mean, what the hell? If the Saudi intelligence helped Al-Qaeda carry out the attack or something, then, you know, that raises some questions and things. But still, they're piggybacking on Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri's war against the United States. And I think there's so much credible evidence and reporting to show. It doesn't all come from the torture of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, right? I mean, there's all kinds of reasons to understand and believe that they had decided on this policy of uniting the international jihadist movement against the United States because it was one thing that he could get, bin Laden could get others to really agree on. And because this, the idea was that as long as the American empire is there to back up all the dictators of the region, then they're never going to get anywhere in waging their local revolutions. They got to get rid of us first. So to replicate the American-sponsored war in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union in the 80s, they would lure us into Afghanistan, bog us down, bleed us to bankruptcy, force us out the long and the hard way so that then they could do what they wanted. And I think that that is the real story behind al-Qaeda's war against the United States in the 90s, even as uh, Bill Clinton continued to back them in Bosnia, Kosovo, and Chechnya. They still were attacking us all through the 1990s and leading up to September 11th. And the thing of it is, a huge part of the motivation for the hijackers themselves was Israel's treatment of the Palestinians and the Lebanese with the military and financial support of the United States of America. And if somebody just said, look, the terrorists hate us because we support Israel— you might just say, well, F them. We like Israel and you can't intimidate us and we don't negotiate with terrorists and this kind of thing. But we're not talking about just supporting Israel. We're talking about Israel committing absolutely horrific war crimes against men, women and children for decades on end. And only with the complicity of the United States of America, helping them get away with it all, with America's dominant power in the region. And this is literally, whether bin Laden ever gave a damn or not, which I think he did, he knew that this was successful recruiting shtick to get guys to hijack planes and crash them into our towers to kick off a generational war. And quite honestly, I am just so grateful right now that he is dead, dead, dead. And that whether Zawahiri is around or not, he never commanded the respect that bin Laden did. And apparently whoever is his successor in running these various kind of offshoots of uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda, like Jolani, CIA's sock puppet in Syria, you know, right now, that none of these guys have the charisma that it took for bin Laden to corral these men and turn them against the United States in this way. And we ought to feel really lucky right now. We're still at risk of so-called lone wolf attacks. And God knows if some group, Sunni or Shia or whoever, could infiltrate the United States and hit some soft targets. Our country is certainly lousy with them. But this is the kind of fire that we're playing with. And again, I'm not talking about appeasing anyone other than just doing the right thing and stopping doing the wrong thing that we shouldn't be doing in the first place. And it was American support for uh, the Israelis in Palestine and Lebanon, along with the Israeli-insisted-upon policy of dual containment of Iraq and Iran from bases in Saudi Arabia through the 1990s that got us into this whole damn terror war, Jeremy. And I think that, uh, as Ron Paul said, we think— if we, he's speaking in the royal we, un, unfairly taking responsibility for the rest of the government's actions, uh, good old Dr. Paul, if the government thinks that they can just go around the world
world doing whatever they want to people and dropping bombs in these ways and and at no risk to themselves or to the people of this country, then they do that at our own peril, as we saw on September 11th. And it took, you know, even when he nailed Giuliani in the Giuliani moment, it's still never all the way took that it ain't Islam. It's radical politics that motivates these men to want to kill us. And we need to think smart about what makes it worth it or not. And is serving Benjamin Netanyahu really worth it? When you're at risk of losing your skyscrapers and at risk of kicking off another era of of terror war after the blowback coming from this one, it's just nuts that we're doing this at our country's expense in on behalf of this country that does not deserve our favor whatsoever. So how about that in the form of a question? What do you think, Jeremy? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree with you for the most part. I mean, I, on nine eleven, um, I mean, I agree. There are people who believe it was like a false flag in the sense that, like, there were no hijackers and 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 you know, I mean, there's some kind of crazy ideas out there. Um, I do believe that there was, you know, we were lied to. I don't by by no means believe the full official story. Uh, we were certainly lied to about the events of that day. For example, there was foreknowledge, and 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 there, there are issues like that, and certainly. Um, what and whatever case we know that that the the neo conservatives in in power in Washington certainly used that event um, as a catalyzing event to push forth their agenda, as which you know really accords well, I think, with what what you were saying. Um, and I think that was kind of a, a gift to Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda that that the neocons were in power at that moment in time. Agree, uh, yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I'm a reverse it, 9-11 truther. I think that the neocons are secret agents of Al-Qaeda all along. <laughs> How's that for a conspiracy theory? You know, why not? As long as we're making up stuff, that makes more yeah. sense, really. <laughs> right. It, but, you know, I, also you made the point about, you know, it's not about appeasing uh, appeasement. It's about doing what, what's right and what we should have been doing in the first place. And, you know, the, the same is true for... Um, you know, I get asked, well, what should Israel do? You know, well, you're against the genocide. What should they do? This stupid question. As as though there was no other choice for Israel but but to commit genocide. But, you know, I mean, and I, my response is, well, it, it, it should end its its systematic um, so systematic uh, violation of, of Palestinians' human rights. You know, that's not that's not appeasement. It's just doing what they sh should be doing and should have been doing in the first place. Um, you know, and that also... You know, this, there's this, uh, you, you kind of touched on a point where, you know, it's not that they're not, you know, it's like 9-11. They didn't attack us on 9-11 because they hate our freedoms, you know, uh, and Hamas didn't, uh, you know, you can say what you want about Hamas, but but generally speaking, it's not an issue. The, the root cause of the conflict uh, is not some kind of inherent um, Palestinian hatred of Jews. You know, Jews and Arabs got along peacefully as neighbors in Palestine before the Zionist movement. Um, and you had, you know, you can go back in the, in the 19, 1920, 1921, 1929, there were uh, Arab riots in which Jews were murdered. Um, and of course, the Zionists like to point to those as, look, look, see, the, the Jews can't live with the Arabs. The Arabs hate, hate us. Um, and, and they try to point to those as though that that proves that, you know, that the root cause of the conflict is just inherent Arab hatred of Jews. But of course, you, know, you can look back at the British commissions of inquiry and into each one of those outbreaks of violence under the mandate period. Um, and, and it was their conclusion. And, and they 
thoroughly backed up their conclusion um, that that there was no inherent anti-Semitism among the Arab inhabitants of, of Palestine, that that what they, that the riots were a, 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 a basically an expression of their frustration at number one, their the promise the British promised to support to in, in during World War One the British had had promised the the Arabs support for their independence from Ottoman rule. They violated, they broke that promise to instead support the Zionist project to reconstitute Palestine into a Jewish state. Um, so they were frustrated about that. And of course, they were frustrated about the Zionist leadership um, with, in their aim, uh, implicit at first, and in, in later by 1937, explicit, their aim of uh, expelling the Arab population to be able to create a demographically Jewish state when Arabs were the majority and owned most of the privately owned land. Um, Jews at the time of the end of the mandate owned less than 7% of the land. Arabs owned more land in every single district in Palestine. And they also remained the majority population. Um, and so the root cause of the conflict is this rejection of Palestinians' right to self-determination. And so, you know, and of course, the, the hatred and the violence is a consequence of this suppression. You know, you can't keep people suppressed and, and oppressed uh, and systematically violate their human rights for, for more than 75 years consistently, perpetually, and not expect there to be blowback. Um, and so, yeah, the, the right thing to do is to, of course, to implement sensible policies where the, that, that respect human rights. But, you know, this is something that Israel doesn't want to do. Uh, and it's enabled by, by the U.S. government, which, of course, has its own horrific record of terrible, you know, violations of, of human rights um, abroad, certainly. Yeah, well, that's absolutely right. So uh, there's so many issues to go over here, but let's talk about the big G word here for a second. Now, I'm kind of reluctant to use the term genocide in the very Rome statute legal definition of the term because it seems like it's such a narrow definition that then you can apply it to lots of things. But I look at, for example, the war in Yemen, where, hell, they must have known they weren't going to dislodge the Houthis by, I don't know, month three or four. And they weren't really, you know, erasing and replacing the population of Yemen, destroying the nation. But they were deliberately inflicting a famine on them, putting them under total blockade and then bombing all their crops and bombing their fishing boats, bombing their grain silos, and bombing their flocks of sheep and everything that they could, bombing all the waterworks and the sewage in order to poison people. Once they get cholera, they bomb the cholera hospital. That's uh, Saudi and UAE backed by Barack Obama and Donald Trump's United States of America from 2015 through, you know, at the beginning, well, really the first year of Biden um, to, you know, the, the war finally really came to an end. It may restart now, but it had come to an end by, you know, uh, early 22 there. But um, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people killed, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, mostly deprived to death in this, you know, the world's greatest superpower deliberately inflicting a famine on these people. And so I don't know what you'd call that other than genocide. 
Then I look at what's happening in Gaza, and it's clearly what they call ethnic cleansing, which I guess is just a stupid and horrible euphemism for genocide in the first place, maybe. And they're certainly killing tens of thousands of them. They're force marching them is what they're really doing, right? They're removing them. And I wonder, does that count as genocide, really? Because when you use the G word, it sounds like you're using the H word. And, you know, as everyone knows, no fair. Not even the Ukrainians can compare their Holodomor to the Holocaust or the Armenian genocide under the Turkish uh, Ottomans. Um, not even they can compare their genocides to the Holocaust. But if you use the G word at all, it sounds like that's what you're doing. And how dare you and that kind of thing. Maybe it even shuts down discussion and makes your side sound unreasonable, possibly. I don't know. What do you think of all my rambling there, sir? Yeah, well, no, I, I do see it. There is a distinction in, in my mind um, between ethnic cleansing and genocide. And and I don't use the word genocide lightly. I've never used it to describe um, anything in the history of the Israel-Palestine conflict until um, the recent Operation Swords of Iron um, that the IDF is perpetrating. Um, so in 1948, I've never described what happened as genocide. That was an ethnic cleansing in the sense that um, while there were massacres, and they, those massacres were used to to, uh, to to terrorize the the Palestinian population um, into flight, uh, there were direct expulsions, you know, fear campaigns. Um, but but mainly, for the most part, there, I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't a systematic attempt to exterminate the, the the Arab population. They just wanted them gone. You know, the Zionists just wanted them gone. And that's what happened. 750,000, which was the majority of the Arab population of Palestine, became refugees. Um, this is different. What's happening now is different. You have clear, explicit intent to, number one, the very first thing that they announced was that they were go weren't going to allow food, water, fuel, electricity to the population. These are goods necessary for survival. Before 10-7, uh, people need to understand also, you know, the population of Gaza, 70% of the population are refugees from the 1948 ethnic cleansing or their descendants. Um, if about half of the population are children, youths, uh, you know, children and adolescents, um, you know, people who, who know nothing but living in this huge con concentration camp. And before 107, you you the the population was already dependent, you know, living under a 16-year blockade since 2007, um, where Israel has controlled what goes in and what goes out of the concentration camp. And the situation before 107 was that there was a requirement of 500 trucks a day going into Gaza to deliver humanitarian aid just for the Palestinians living there to live at subsistence level. And to block the humanitarian aid, um, for, for the first couple of weeks, it was a total siege. The, the, the U.S. government put a little bit of pressure on Israel to say, hey, come on now, at least pretend, pretend like, you know, you have some kind of humanitarian, um, you know, some concept of humanitarianism and, and let in uh, some trucks into the Rafah crossing. Israel acceded to that demand because, of course, you know, it wants to please the U.S., so it continues to receive U.S. support for its ongoing atrocities. Um, and so there was a tiny trickle of aid allowed in, you know, just a cynical, really a cynical um, policy, you know, PR stunt, because, it, you know, the, the trickle of aid doesn't even come close 
to even beginning to meet the, 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 the increasing needs, what needed to happen was not, not a, a decrease of the amount of supplies that are allowed into Gaza, but of course, a major increase. Um, and it went from, you know, and then uh, just in the last, like yesterday or the day before, finally, again, as a result of uh, pressure from, from the Biden administration, again, really just a kind of a cynical public relations ploy, because it doesn't really do much to, to meet the de demands and the need. But uh, Israel finally opened the Karim Shalom crossing in the north of Gaza to allow in humanitarian aid through there. Um, but, you know, you have a situation, first of all, where, again, it's just it's, it remains just a trickle of aid. And uh, it's just nowhere near what needs to happen is there needs to be an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. And you need to have hundreds and hundreds of truckloads going into Gaza on a daily basis. All the crossings need to be open to allow this to happen because the Reports now, uh, the World Food Program has uh, said that half the population is now starving. Uh, you know, severe food insecurity. Um, you have a situation where people don't have potable drinking water, and they're drinking whatever water they can find. Um, which, of course, you know, is just there's already disease outbreaks. Um, you know, and more people could could die from disease than from the bombings. You have a situation where. Um, the you the the IDF in the beginning uh, ordered the entire north half of Gaza, every, everyone living north of what what the Wadi Gaza, which is this wetlands area that kind of bisects um, the north and ha south halves of, of Gaza. Everyone north of that line must flee south, creating you know this huge displacement of the population and in of refugees fleeing refugees again made refugees twice now fleeing south um while israel continued to bomb the south you have them fleeing into you uh schools uh, un run schools um that are being used as shelters and then the shelters being bombed you have israel systematically targeting civilian infrastructure necessary for their survival um you, you water treatment uh, you know, facilities, shutting off all electricity, not allowing fuel in for, for the hospitals to run the generators, to be able to, for, to, to, for the hospitals to can remain operative, systematically targeting the hospitals to shut them down so that they can't provide health care and they can't treat the injured. Um, it's, just, it's just way beyond ethnic cleansing. And then you have now, uh, um, since there was a one-week period where there was a ceasefire and exchange of hostages. Since that ended, Israel has been vowing to, to do the same thing that it did in the north of Gaza and the south of Gaza. Um, and it's been working toward that goal. Um, and it's been telling people in the south of Gaza now to flee. Where are they supposed to go? Um, while, it, you know, while it continues moving south and it's, it, it's just expanding its operations in the south, this is clear. You know, the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide defines it as any number of acts uh, that are committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, ethnical, or racial, or religious group. Um, that can include killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. I think these criteria have clearly been met in the case of what's happening in Gaza. Yeah. Well, listen, man, I'm so sorry we're out of time, but in addition to uh, your great articles at jeremyrhammond.com, I just wanted to point to this thing 
that uh, we ran as the picture story on antiwar.com yesterday about this 12-year-old girl who lost her entire family and her leg in an airstrike, I think, two weeks ago. And she was recovering in the hospital, and the media come and done a profile of her, and she talked about all she wanted was to someday go abroad and get a fake leg so that she can play again. Well, then they killed her because the Israelis attacked the hospital in the Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus was struck by an Israeli tank shell and killed the 12-year-old girl whose leg they had already blown off. That's the war that America's backing in Gaza right now. And, you know, I don't know, man. I don't really believe in karma or any kind of spiritual sort of um, retribution or anything like that. But there is just sort of the basic reality of what goes around comes around. And as Ron Paul said, our government is playing with fire that can burn all of us here in this country as it has before again for participating in this. And it's just sickening. And yeah, you know, Scott, on that point, it's in all of our best interest to speak up and stand up yeah. and not be afraid of the accusations of anti-Semitism and all these intellectually dishonest and, and morally cowardly um, types of arguments that are produced by the other side. You know, we all need to speak up and stand up because it's in our own best interest. Yeah, absolutely right. All right. Well, listen, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your great work. And um, we're going to be in touch here. That's uh, JeremyRHammond.com. There are two books. Uh, First is Obstacles of Peace, which is the definitive everything you need to know here. But he also has this free ebook, The Israel-Palestine Conflict, a collection of essays that you can get if you sign up over at JeremyRHammond.com, which I haven't looked at, but I've read all the essays before, so I know it's the very best of stuff, as you've just been hearing. So thank you so much again for your time, Jeremy. Really appreciate you, man. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate you, too, and honored to be on your show again. The Scott Horton Show and Anti-War Radio can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSRadio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.